Whether you find yourself this morning sitting in a sanctuary, sitting in the comfort of home, unable to be in worship with us this morning, or driving down the road listening to the radio, I'm glad that you've chosen to be a part of here in Church of the Nazarene this morning. We'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 in a few moments. If you want to turn there, uh, scroll there in, in the Bible that may be on your phone, whatever that looks like, you're more than welcome to do that. Before we jump into our text this morning, I want to tell you, this is entering one of my favorite weeks of the entire year. Uh, I am absolutely looking forward to, especially looking into this coming weekend. I say week, it's really a weekend festivity I'm looking forward to coming up next weekend. I would ask you all if you know what that special weekend is, and most of you in error would say something like Valentine's Day. Nope, that is not it whatsoever. It is an event I look forward to each year by the name of Palooza. You have no idea what process of Palooza is. Let me tell you, several friends of mine and I, for several years, I wish I had gone back to figure out when we started this. We all live a very similar lifestyle in which the vast majority of meats that we eat within our homes are from our own adventures of procuring protein from the waters and the lands and all over the place. Every year we get together at the end of all those seasons that kind of come together. It's normally in the month of January, but this year because of a few things, we pushed it back to the month of February. And so next weekend is the event when me and the core was three of us, but it's really grown past that. There'll probably be eight to ten of us that get together. And we begin the process of making all sorts of things. Some of the things that are on my favorite, my kind of top hit list to make this year, I make my own homemade chorizo. We grind our own spices. It's an incredible uh, addition to dishes we make throughout the year. We make things that, that uh, go from uh, common jerkies and snack sticks and summer sausages to things like boudin, uh, of course, the chorizo I mentioned, breakfast sausages, all sorts of things that we make, bratwurst, Italian sausages. The list just continues to grow on. It's been a fun thing to learn because in all reality, when we started years ago, we were okay at the process, not to say that we've arrived. But as a, as a beginning stages, we made products that were okay. There probably was much a novelty to eat them because we had been making our own bratwurst. That's not something that many people make. We're making our own Italian sausages. And so as we were doing those things, we thought these are good. But let me tell you, over the years, we've gotten much better. Like I look back at some of the products we made six, eight, ten years ago, and I'm like, that eh, was okay. You know, now I'm going to tell you what, we break open some boudin out of Daniel's freezer. It's good stuff. You know what I mean? Like we get into some brats that we've made in the last year. I'm going to tell you what, we're starting to make things better, but, but we've learned lessons as we've moved along about how to be better at the craft of processing of, of wild game and making things and all that stuff. It's something that does not only apply to, to that one hobby of my life, though, right? I mean, the, the process of getting better at something, of working through a craft, is something that we do as people. I look around this room this morning and recognize that many of you have been working through the crafts of life. There are things that you do that you're very, very good at. I'm not sure if you've ever seen some of Bill Taylor's uh, work when it comes to, do you call that carving? Is that the right word? Sometimes there's a better word that people use uh, that I'm not aware of. So carves all sorts of little statues. If you've ever been down to the Houston County Coffee Company, some of his work is oftentimes sitting on the shelves down there. He's very, very good at it. You look around this room, some of you have become incredible. <clears throat> 
Some of you in this room have become incredible chefs. You've become incredible individuals at creating craft or making things. Some of you are, uh, you do things in precision. I enjoy uh, standing on the back porch on Sunday mornings and talking to Randy Moore. And I know he represents in my life a bunch of guys who work at a, 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 a facility or a plant here locally called Southern Gage. And, and within their, uh, their make, they make precision instruments that go down to the thousandth of an inch. Let me tell you what, I just got finished framing a house. There's nothing in my house measured to the thousandth of an inch, okay? Within an inch is good. You know, not maybe not within an inch, but you get my point. Like, he's in a very different world of precision. And so when you start working through those things, you have to, you know, learn lessons and learn how to do things that are better. And you, you work at your craft. I wonder sometimes when you think about the things that you have become better at, what has made you better at what you do? I mean... Many of us would say it's probably trial and error. I mean, how many of you learned some really, really good lessons by messing some stuff up? You know, you've got to learn that the hundredth of an inch matters in Randy's world by mistakenly doing something incorrectly and then realizing that what you made doesn't work. And so you have to go back and sharpen and refine that. I have made dishes for my family in that same processing, learning what to do, those sorts of things. I can remember a specific dish I was trying to make. I tried it twice and not even the dog would eat it. It was that bad. I remember the dog looking up at me like, what have you done to this? This should have been good. You know, like you learn those things through trial and error. Sometimes you get started by sheer fascination. Sometimes in that learning as you go along the way, you make those mistakes, you make changes in the process. Sometimes it is maybe equipment that you learn how to better use or this new tool that makes your, your, uh, your work even better. Sometimes as you work in that and you, you face those things in whatever your specific trade or craft or thing is, you do things incorrectly like the dish I was talking about and you just think maybe I should just give this up, you know? I'm asking all of those questions and getting your mind there to ask you the same questions, you know, the way that we do our, our craft, the way we work at the things to be better at, our professions, those sorts of things, those same things apply to the art of evangelism. Uh, evangelism's a, a big word, but let's, let's kind of shrink evangelism down to telling people about Jesus, okay? I feel like sometimes when you say the word evangelism, all of a sudden, it, it, because it's a bigger word, it, it like implies a whole lot more, and like we get way too caught up in, in making this too complicated. Evangelism is simply telling people about Jesus, and I wonder sometimes, have we worked well at our craft? Like, do we do, we do well at this process in telling people about who Jesus is in our life? Sometimes, as we work through that, I would say, We've hit those places before where we did not do evangelism well. Uh, maybe where we did not do it well. We didn't tell Jesus, tell people about Jesus very well, and we may have been discouraged along the way. And yet still, we're called to tell people about Jesus. Amen? So how this morning might we look and, and, and learn how to better tell people about Jesus? Well, one of the things I think we should do is in this 1 Corinthians chapter 2 text, it's our New Testament lectionary text for the morning. It's one that you need to know, though. Paul is talking about his interaction with the church at Corinth, and he's talking about when he first came to speak to them. We'll read the text in just a moment. <clears throat> As we read it, though, you need to know, like, where does this sit? It sits in a place where Paul had been in, in Athens preceding his trip to Corinth. 
you, you may not recognize this, uh, and I'm not trying to take away from Paul whatsoever. We read Paul through the lenses of being this incredible patriarch in the church, this man who was incredibly uh, intelligent, articulate, uh, one of the sharpest and smartest men of his time, very influential, motivational. You could make a very strong case that he's probably in the top five most influential Christians to have ever walked this earth. The reason you would make that is because, guess what? 2,000 years-ish after he was alive, we're still here reading his letters. You know what I mean? Like, kind of hard to say that anybody since then has had that kind of an impact. Like, people have been shaped by him for centuries and for centuries now. So when you think about him, you sometimes put him on such a pedestal. And I'm not trying to take away from Paul, but I'm going to tell you what. Paul had to work at his craft. He was not good at it at first. As a matter of fact, if you go back and read about his trip to Athens in Acts chapter 17... You read about him walking into a place called the Areopagus. Areopagus may mean nothing to you. It was the gathering place of a lot of aristocrats. Another weird word, right? In their existence, in the Greek existence, the aristocrats were people that were people of privilege, normally people of money and of assets. And they were the ones who would get together and have deep, these deep conversations. They believed in great deal of like being wise and being smart and studied philosophy. And so these aristocrats would come together in the Areopagus as a court or a council of people to talk. And so Paul thought he would show up at the Areopagus with all of his wisdom and all of his abilities, and he would walk in and change Athens and therefore change the movement of, of history at that point. You know what? It didn't work. As a matter of fact, he told people the story of Jesus, and, and let's, let's give him some credit. There were a few people who followed him from this and left, but by and large, when he told people about this, and he got to the part of the story about Jesus being resurrected from the dead, Acts 17, especially verses 32 and 30 through 34, says that when they heard him talk about resurrection from the dead, they sneered. They began to laugh at him. You know what I mean? Like This is not something like, oh my gracious, this guy's off of his rocker. You need to know, Paul wasn't born or all of a sudden just because he was saved. He didn't become this tell people about Jesus juggernaut that you may have thought of him today. As a matter of fact, he learned some very, very valuable lessons. And it is on his trip to Corinth from and immediately following that Athens trip that he writes about his interaction. That's what we're reading this morning. It's in that, what is he talking about after having failed in a lot of ways leaving Athens and now going to Corinth? How does he speak to them? And so this morning, we're going to read 1 Corinthians chapter 2. If you would, if you're in the sanctuary with us this morning, stand for the reading of the Word. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters... When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence of human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. God, we come before you this morning reading something that is, it is the core of how we go about telling people about Jesus. It is the product of one of the patriarchs of the church learning what it means to tell people about Jesus. So this morning, God, as we work through this text a bit, would you sharpen and challenge us so that we can become better at the craft of evangelism? Is your son's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> 
I think it's necessary we point out a couple of things about this text and about the ways that Paul, what he's learning. I'm going to leave this up on the screen for you if you're here in house this morning, just for you to kind of continue, go back to. Please, I encourage you, let your mind in a good way wander, not wandering toward whatever you're going to do this afternoon. Okay, but wandering toward like what is going on in this text. So we'll leave it up on the screen for you to continue to look at and reflect as I spend a little bit of time talking about and calling these things out, maybe calling some special attention to a first few places. One of the first ones that I would call your attention to is something that we deal with when it comes to telling people about Jesus. I may even ask you to think, what keeps you from telling people about Jesus the most? My guess is that you are nervous in one way or another. What are you nervous about when it comes to telling people about Jesus? Think with me for just a moment. Some of you may even answer in the sanctuary this morning. What are you nervous about when it comes to telling people about Jesus? A very normal, very normal thing to feel is a bit of, a bit of fear and anxiety when it comes to telling people about Jesus. What, what brings you fear and anxiety? Yeah. I'm afraid to be sneered at. Yeah. I don't even know what sneering really, like, I know what it looks like. You know what I mean? Like, I've seen the look on people's faces when they sneer at something, you know? Uh, I, don't get me wrong. I grew up in the mid-state of Alabama, and I've lived amongst Tennessee fans for half my life now. I know what sneering means. All right? I, I get the sneering. What else are we, what makes us nervous? Uh, what if I don't have the answer to their question? It's a very, very good one. And it will, it will, that will be answered in our, later in our sermon as well. It's a great thing that we're afraid of. L let me suggest this to you this morning. Your uneasiness, your anxiety, and your fear about telling people about Jesus, please, please, please never lose it. When you begin to truly, like completely consider what you are offering when you begin to tell someone about Jesus, you can never take that chore, that job, that craft lightly. Folks, so many things that we do on this earth are so finite, so short-term, and they don't matter. The proverbial, the, church, the, you know, the proverbial church that argues over the color of the carpet, okay? We argue over things that don't matter in the grand scheme of things. But you want to know what matters in this room? It is not what color the carpet is, but it is what is proclaimed in this room. Amen? It is, it is not necessarily the silly things that we may argue about. But trust me, my wife and I are in the middle of a home building process. We're making all sorts of decisions. But you want to know what? None of those decisions matter a hill of beans compared to talking to someone about Jesus. So let me tell you what, it's natural to have a sense of fear, a sense of anxiety, or a sense of nervousness because you are dealing in eternity. What else do you do in your life that literally deals in eternity, that actually deals with the eternal implications? And the reality is not much. I'm not trying to demean or take away from what you do, but not many things that we do where we spend our time being worried about are of eternal nature. And so when you begin this process of telling someone about Jesus, a healthy fear is a great thing. Can I be a little bit more transparent with you this morning? If you're in the sanctuary, you typically see me enter from this my left, your right-hand side of the sanctuary. When I walk through those doors, the immediate minutes when I'm there, there is a sense of anxiety and a sense of nervousness. It does, does not matter to me that I've been preaching for 20 years now. It does not matter to me that I've been preaching for 20 years. I'm still standing there recognizing that I'm about to walk out and deal with something that is eternal. 
I'm not walking out here to teach you how to make better coffee. That doesn't matter as much as you may think it does. It doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things. What matters is that we're dealing in eternity. And so when you walk into that space where you're sharing with someone about the story of Jesus, you should have a sense of fear and trembling and a bit of, of anxiety about it because it is something that is, a, is of an eternal nature. And that is counter to a lot of what we do in life. I've, I've heard ministers in the past make statements about having you know, preached sermons and how they feel. And one of the common themes is a feeling of unworthiness to walk out and tell people that this is the Word of the Lord. If the people who do that, it communicates well, though I don't really like the full implications of this. If the people who do that professionally still walk out from stand behind a pulpit with fear and trembling, Please understand that a, that a person who doesn't on a weekly basis, on multiple times a week, step out and say, this is what the Word of, the God, of God says, right? And absolutely everyone should feel a sense of fear and a sense of anxiety and a little bit of nervousness because you take seriously what you're doing. I need you to hear this morning that Paul even says that patriarch came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling because he takes seriously what he's doing. The next thing that I, I want to point out in this is in the very beginning, that very, very first verse is in this chapter anyway, as you know, we separate the Bible into chapters and verses, and as this segment is separated into a chapter, and so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with what? Eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. In your lifetime, who would you say are some of the best public speakers that you've listened to? Who are some of the best communicators? I love that I have answers coming from all over the place. I look back and I think of, you know, we've had some presidents that were master orators. Masterful. Whether you like their policies or not has no, no bearing whatsoever. Um, but you look back at some of the ones that I've been alive and old enough to, to appreciate. Um, Bill Clinton was a polished speaker. The guy knew how to communicate and he knew how to convince people. I think you could make the same statement about Barack Obama. Dude was a polished speaker. Uh, now I was, <clears throat> to put my, my life in context, one that other people talk about, maybe not as the polished speaker, but as, an, as a great communicator of, of presidential past, uh, he was inaugurated the day I was born, uh, and that's Reagan. They say that many people who watched him years ago say he was a great communicator. Maybe not the polished speaker that we've heard in some recent years, but definitely a great communicator. And one of the things that we sometimes feel like is if I'm going to be the person who shares with, G shares with people the story of Jesus, then I need to be someone who speaks polished. <clears throat> I need to have my thoughts together in such a way that I can deliver them with, with, with eloquence. You understand? Paul himself, one of the more intelligent and sharp individuals, acknowledges when he came to them to talk to them about who Jesus is, and at that point who Jesus had lived, the life that was, on the, the, the life of Jesus on this earth, how that was. He speaks to them saying, like, it is not with eloquence that I come and speak to you. It's not with this sense of, of human wisdom. Folks, I need to set you free from something this morning. It is not your wisdom or your beautiful words that saves people. So the pressure to create 
great and beautiful words. And using bigger words and a deeper vocabulary doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to win someone for Christ. It is not your words that matters. It is your words sharing into their ears, yes. But it is the Holy Spirit doing its work in that process that is going to save people. Amen? Let me set you free from telling you you ain't got to be nervous about words anymore. Speak plainly. Speak commonly. Speak the way that you have experienced Jesus Christ in your own life and use your words to share. Use your analogies to share. Yes, you can borrow and glean and steal from other people, okay? Plagiarism only works when you write stuff. Evangelism, there is no plagiarism, okay? Like, it's a beautiful thing about it. You use whatever words that you can gather together, whatever works for you, and you share with people how you have experienced Jesus because they're not going to be saved because of you as a polished speaker. They're going to be saved because you are willing to tell them about the Savior who saved you and who can save them as well. Don't let evil convince you that it is going to be with your polished words. Clovis, king of the Franks, tells a story about Christian missionaries who came to share. Actually, someone else is telling the story about Clovis as he heard the story. And as they told the story of Jesus, sharing with them what, who Jesus was and what had happened, they get to the part where Jesus dies on the cross, and the story is told from the missionaries that Clovis grabs up and grabs the hilt of his sword to draw it and says, if my men had been around and I had heard of this, we would have stopped it. You understand? When people hear the story of Jesus, the story of Jesus is the work. It's not, it's not you. I, I sat with missionaries who traveled around sharing the Jesus film, and they would have the story of Jesus portrayed up on screens. And one of the stories that captivated me was that in the middle of one of the sessions where they were sharing the Jesus film story, gunfire erupts. Now, in other countries, believe it or not, in other countries, there are people walking around with firearms like crazy, way more than you all think happened in the U.S., okay? And in some of those countries, you know, they're walking around for different purposes or different uses or whatever it may be. And there were those who were there with long rifles and with firearms. And as the portion came to where Jesus was being beaten before being hung on the cross, that's when the firearm started erupting. And it took them a little while to gain composure and figure out what was going on. And it was men who had not seen screens before. Men who are watching other men on a screen and were trying to navigate with their mind. They're not used to growing up with TVs and screens. And all of a sudden, they're watching this man who they now love because they've heard his story. They've seen what's happening. They're watching it portrayed on a screen. And they begin to shoot the bad guys on the screen. That's what's going on. The bullets are flying through the screen as these people are watching it take place. Because I'm here to tell you, folks, it is the story of Jesus that compels and changes people. It is not your craftiness or your eloquence of words. So let me set you free from not, no longer being worried about the, the, the words that you need or the, the human wisdom that you need to be able to put together. Another thing in this story, and it'll be the final one that we talk about this morning, is go down to verse 4 with me if you would. He talks about how my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, again going back to what we were talking about earlier, but he continues a little bit further. He says, but with the demonstration of the Spirit's power with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. I would ask you to reflect for just a moment. How have you experienced Jesus at work in your life? How have you experienced Jesus at work in your life? 
Not necessarily the stories you've heard about Jesus at work, but how have you experienced Jesus at work in your life? John Hutton, a Scottish minister, tells the story often of an individual sharing the stories of Jesus. And while sharing the stories of Jesus and even some of the miracles, he was sharing about the things that had been done. And for whatever reason, one of the miracles that stood out to the person who was asking him questions, you have a person telling the story about Jesus, right? And as he's telling the story about Jesus, one of the stories he talks about is Jesus turning water into wine. And as he tells the story about Jesus turning water into wine, the guy standing across from him says, so you're telling me that that Jesus actually turned the water into wine. He gave the most brilliant response possible. So the question is, so you're telling me Jesus actually turned the water into wine? And he said, you know, I was not there. So I have not seen Jesus turn water into wine. But I can tell you in my own house, he's turned beer into furniture. Telling you my own house, he's made a difference. He's used what I used to spend money on He's changed that into what I now spend money on, how I I do things in my life. My question for you is this, how has God changed you? Because it's not going to be persuasive words or eloquence or some beautiful uh, uh, monologue that you were able to deliver to someone else that, that brings them to the salvation of Christ. It is you bearing witness to who Jesus was and is. And then you also bearing witness to how He has changed your life specifically. So my question for you this morning, what have you seen God do in your life? How have you seen Him answer prayers? We mentioned in our prayer time this morning the individuals that we've been praying for and how we had seen God at work and what He had done. So my question for you is, where in your life have you seen God at work so that you were able to tell that story of what God has done? Because it is through, as Paul talks about, the demonstration of the Spirit's power. It is in very real terms, not just that the Bible shares these stories, and those are incredible stories and we believe those stories. I'm not negating those whatsoever. But for you to be able to communicate to someone, these are the stories stories of Bible, of the Bible, and these are the ways that I have seen God change my life. Folks, if you want to become a person who grows in the craft and gets better at sharing the story of Jesus, hey, you got you just got to try. You know what I mean? You got to be out there at work doing it. You got to be giving it a shot and trying to put it together. Number two, please, please act, quit acting like you have to have it all figured out in order to tell someone about Jesus. When you read Paul's conversion, by the way, y'all remember him getting knocked down to the ground and uh, the bright light shining on him and later on a few days, scales fall from his eyes. You know what he's doing within the next few days? Preaching about Jesus. You want to tell me Paul has it all figured out three days after having had the scales removed from his eyes? Absolutely not. You do not have to have it all figured out. But you do enter telling people about Jesus. You enter in that process recognizing with fear and trembling, recognizing the seriousness of that conversation. And then in doing so, you realize it is not your responsibility to save those people. It's not your job. You are not the one that saves. You are simply the messenger who points them toward Jesus. And as you're pointing people toward Jesus and telling them about the story of the person who lives in the Bible, you demonstrate how you've seen Him at action in your life. And at that point, not that you don't care anymore, not that you wipe your hands free and clear and you're not worried about it anymore, But at that point, you have done your responsibility to live out what it means to tell people about Jesus in front of someone else. Who in your life right now, in a very real eternal sense, is dying, waiting on you to tell them about what Jesus has done in your life? You work with people on a daily basis who need to know Christ. 
You, you do family events with people on a daily basis who need to know about Christ. You probably have friends that you hang out with, that you've been hanging out with for a long time, and you've been nervous. You know that their life may be in shambles. There are things that are chaotic in their world, and you've been worried about them, but because of the fears and the concerns that you have, you've not been willing to broach that eternal spiritual conversation. And I'm here to tell you this morning, go in the power of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit to tell people about your Lord and Savior. It's what you're called to do. It's the last thing that Jesus tells us to do. Go therefore and make disciples. And that's our call this morning. God, we come before you this morning recognizing that you have called each of us to go into this world and share with people the story of Jesus Christ. That God, when we do that, we oftentimes find ourselves in a place of being a bit worried, having anxieties and fears. And though those are warranted and necessary in some ways, God, forgive us of allowing those to keep us from telling people about our Lord and Savior. As we move back into this week, no doubt your Holy Spirit will prompt us and make us recognize that, God, we probably need to share an encouraging word about Christ and what Christ can do in someone's life. And you will likely nudge us when we're in the presence of that person that we need to share testimony to. When we feel that nudge, God, would you help us to move through those fears? and to share the story of Jesus, not worrying about eloquence and human wisdom, but allowing and opening the door so that the Holy Spirit can do its work. We love you today, God. We thank you for who you are. It is your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen.